Perhaps you've heard the name Jim Gaffigan. Jim Gaffigan is a relatively clean comedian. If you know that name, he's kind of like the comedian, like Seinfeld comedian, because he takes things like Hot Pockets, and he talks about Hot Pockets for like 30 30 minutes. Kids, you may not know what Hot Pockets are. That's okay. Um, He talks about bacon for like 45 minutes, and he just keeps talking about the same things. Um, What you might not know about Jim Gaffigan is that he lives in New York City in a small apartment, but he has five children. He wrote a book called, a parenting book, it's not a Christian parenting book, I don't think he knows the lore, but he wrote a parenting book called Dad is Fat, Um, he's a comedian, Um, and so in that book he talks about all the different ways in which people look at him funny because he has five kids and he lives in this little apartment, maybe you feel sorry for the people below him if you've ever been in an apartment in New York City, but he gets on the subway with his five kids and he does life in New York City with his five kids, which is looked at as very counter-cultural. And people often will come up to him and say, you know, you know how these things happen. Why don't you live in the burbs? And he has these engaging conversations. I'm sure it gives him plenty of fodder as well for his act. But he lives in a very countercultural way. And he talks about how people find joy or satisfaction and all kinds of different things around him. And it just so happens for him that it's counterculture for, for, for his family to find satisfaction and fulfillment in family life, in a place that values things like money and status and job. But we know as Christians, right? We know as Christians that it's, whether it's money or status or success or even family, that our joy is not found in any of those places. And this is the big trouble for man, and it has been from the beginning of time. You think about Solomon and all that he had and all the success he had and all the wisdom he had and all the stuff that he had and all the status that he had and at the end of life, what did he say? It's all vanity. And then you think about Alexander the Great and he had conquered all the world that he could conquer and he's in his tent and he's weeping because there's nothing else he can conquer. And Tom Brady wins three Super Bowl rings and he said, is this it? And maybe I want to ask him, now he's got six, is he still unsatisfied? See, we tend to look at life and be, try to be satisfied in things that will never satisfy us. And maybe the great theologian Bono had it right. We still haven't found what we're looking for. Have you? Have you found what you're looking for? Where do you look for satisfaction and fulfillment and joy? Where are the places you look? Who do you look to to find those things? See, three, we find our joy in Christ and in his community. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and this is what we'll be looking at today. We know that the spring, if you can think this way with me, the spring of joy that we have in life comes from Christ. He's the source of life, but if you know a spring, a spring comes out and it goes into different streams, and you can come to those streams, and you can take a drink at different streams of the source And today you're going to see three different streams, I think, that we can find joy with the source being Christ. So turn with me. Philippians 1. We'll be in verses 3 through 11. If you need a Bible, there's one on the end of your chair there, page 980. If you have a pen, you need one. There's a lot of detail in this prayer, really, of thanksgiving that Paul comes to the Philippians with. And there's a lot of detail. So we're going to to learn some things today. In God's word that may not, you may not be able to see really clearly on the surface, but there's a, there's a whole lot here for us to learn. There's a whole lot here for us to apply. So verses 3 through 11, let me read it. 
and we'll go from there. And what I want you to notice here is that Paul is kind of like the grandfather, the proud grandfather of his spiritual children. And he's, you see and you feel the joy in his heart for his children, but he's also willing to correct. He's also willing to go and encourage and challenge. And so as we read this, Paul is like this grandfather who is proud of his children, but he's also willing to press in. Look at it. Verse 3 through 11. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. We talked about all of that last week. Always in every prayer of mine. For you are all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Three streams that I see of joy that you and I as believers in Christ, if you know Christ, that you can tap into in your life. The first one is this. C3, we need to find joy on our knees in prayer for others. This is what Paul is doing. He's on his knees and he's praying for this church. Let me ask you a question. Who is his focus? His focus is, look at it, it says, in remembrance of you of you, of you, all the way through this prayer. Where is Paul at? Do you remember from last week where Paul is? He's in a prison cell. He's in a dungeon. He's got shackles on his feet. He sees the rats walk by. He's eating terrible food, and yet he is not thinking of himself. If I'm writing a letter, you know what I'm doing to the Philippians? My whole letter is a prayer list of all the things I want changed. I want the earthquake to happen like it did in Philippi 10, 15 years before so I can get out of jail. I want you to pray so I have better food. I want you to pray that the rats don't and the roaches don't come close to me. That's not what he's doing. He's in a prison cell and yet his thoughts are on the Philippians. His thoughts are on them and praying and being grateful for them and who they are and what they have done. So his focus is on them. See, gratitude changes the atmosphere of our hearts. See, when you have a gracious heart, when you have a gracious heart to God for what he has done and other people, what it does is it fills your heart up in a way so you you can't be bitter about your circumstance. There's, There's not room for bitterness when you have a grateful heart, a full of gratefulness in your heart. There's not room for anger. There's not room for resentment when you have gratitude. You know, I think back to the guy, one of the guys who discipled me, and there was one day where he was just letting me vent about something in ministry, and I just went on and on about my poor self, first world problems. And finally, uh, he just stopped me and said, well, what are you grateful for? (laughs) And I knew exactly what he was doing for me. He was reminding me that, yes, life's really hard with all your first world problems, and he was gentle and kind and all that stuff, too. But he was reminding me that a gratefulness changes my heart, even in times that are tough, even in a prison cell like Paul. But what does he remember? This is, if you weren't here last week, 
What does he remember about the Philippians? He remembers Lydia, who he meets down at the creekside, at the river. He remembers her conversion and remembers how she opened up her home after she came to faith for the church of Philippi to begin that the gospel would advance. It was power in the gospel to change Lydia's heart. The slave girl who was mocking him as he was sharing the gospel with people. And he exercises the demon out of her and she comes to faith. This This is what Paul is remembering. He's remembering the jailer because he had to go to jail. This open door that he had to go to Philippi was an open door for the gospel. It also got him in prison. And he's there in prison and he's praising God and singing and praising God in prison. And there's an earthquake and the jailer thinks he's going to die because in Roman world, when you're a Roman patriot and the people get out of prison on your watch, you get killed. And Paul says, you know what? I'm not leaving. I'm staying right here. And he shared the gospel. He said, what must I do to be saved? So this is what he's remembering. He's remembering how the gospel has advanced and it brings him great joy in praying and remembering him, these people, even in a prison cell. Let me ask you this morning, C3, do you pray for others? Do you pray for others, especially when life's not going well for you? How can you remember what God has done in other people's lives? See, that changes the atmosphere of your heart when you do that. It has that kind of effect on your life. I just mentioned a minute ago, fourth Sunday prayer. If you want an opportunity to pray with other believers, come and experience the joy of praying together, corporately, with the body of Christ. See, we can find joy in prayer for others. And this is, I think, the first idea about finding joy in this passage. And then you look down at verse 9 through 11, and I'm skipping because Paul's so... I think Paul has such a personal relationship with these people, and he loves what's happened. Really, most commentators would say in verse 5 through... Eight, he goes to a different place. So he's thinking about one thing. You ever done that? Where you're, you're praying or you're thinking about one thing and then you get off on something else that you're excited about. He's excited about what's happened in their lives and then he comes back to the prayer in verse 9. Look at it. And he says, It's my prayer that you love, your love may abound more and more. You know what the word picture is there? Love abounding more and more. It's like buckets of water that are overfull, that are overfilled, that your love will continue to grow. So remember... This is the only church that Paul doesn't correct. This is the church that had been giving financially to him and continues to give to him. So they've got a lot of things going right, and yet he's still encouraging them to continue and press on in their love. But not only their love, you met the person who loves people well but doesn't have discernment or wisdom. They tend to be gullible. This is not what's happening. He's combining his prayer of love overfilled love with knowledge and discernment. And this is what we need. Zeal without knowledge is not a good thing. And so we have love and knowledge and discernment. And look at verse 10. It says, so that you may approve what is excellent. And you just kind of, I just kind of skim over that phrase, approve what is excellent. He's not talking about good from evil. He's not talking about discerning good from evil. He's actually talking about being careful, and this is in the Greek, you see it, this is being careful to discern what is best, even from what is good. I want the best for you, not just good from evil, we've got that, but what is best? Man, we live in this world where there is good and then there is best. And so he's praying that they would continue to grow in what is best. There's a lot of distractions in Christian life. 
to lesser things than the best things. And it oftentimes, turn on Facebook, turn on social media, we, let, we often tend to let those things override what is best. And so he's praying that they would continue to grow in love and knowledge and discernment that you may approve what is excellent. It's interesting when I think about approving what is excellent. I often think of, like, when I, if you have kids, you know, when they start talking, they have a few words. Like it's either mommy or daddy or ball or bear or whatever it is. And so that's the word that they use. They continue to use that word. We had this little book in our home, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, what do you see? And so when our kids were young, and it's been so long, I can't remember, so I can't get specific, and I probably shouldn't. But we'd go through that book, and it was like everything was a bear, you know? So, So they've learned the word bear, but now every animal they see is bear. And then they get a little bit older, like in fifth grade, and they're coming home telling you as a parent all these specific things about um, a duckbill platypus that you had no idea about. And they grow in their knowledge so much so that most of the time when they come home, I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, maybe I went through that when I was in fifth grade. But they've grown, right? And this is what he's saying more and more. Approve what is excellent. So little kids learns. I think about this in sports even. When you get to the highest level in whatever sport you want to plug in, the detail makes the difference. All the detail makes the difference. So, you know, we talk about a guy like Usain Bolt, who's the fastest man to ever live. He only is faster than the next guy by a split second. And he's paying attention to all the details of that. To be at that level, the margin of error is very small. Because the next guy is right behind you. So what he's saying to these Philippians is continue on. Continue to grow and grow and grow. Don't be in the place, even if you've grown a lot, even if you're doing well, that you're complacent. Continue to learn and continue to grow. This is where he's going. So don't settle is what he's saying. Keep growing. I think the tendency at some point is just to kind of coast and say, yeah, I know a lot about the Bible. Yeah, I know how to do church. Yeah, I do this. But his prayer for the Philippian church, my prayer for us, is that we continue to grow and grow and grow. And then this last phrase. You need to underline this one. This is really neat. This is kind of geeky for me, and I'm going to share it with you. And so be pure and blameless. This is the last kind of piece of it. Be pure and blameless. Underline the word pure there. It's the word, maybe your Bible says sincere. In Greek, there's often a couple of different thoughts behind a word, or it's a word picture. And so, and this, this word for pure is the, one of the words we get for sincere, or sincere is kind of a Latin Greek word that comes through Greek in that way. And so there's two ideas to it. The first one is being able to withstand the sun. So it's, it's pure in that way. And the other part of it is with no wax, you're like, what in the world is, how do those two things, what, what in the world is without wax and being capable of, to resist the sun's rays have to do with one another? Well, Paul is doing something interesting in his day. If you were in Philippi in that day, there would be a lot of pot makers, people who would take clay and make pots or sculptors, and they would make sculptors. So you would see these in a Roman province all around. And so the problem in their day was this is that when you make a clay pot, if you mess up and you're the potter, then you got to start all over. And somebody's asked you to make this pot, and they're paying you for it, and that's a time thing. And so what people would do, 
what potters would do or sculptors would do, if they, there was a blemish in something they were creating, they would put wax over that area and put the clay all around it, and then they would, it looked fine, and they would sell it. The problem is, is when the sun hits the pot or hits the sculpture, the piece falls off. <laughs> you got a bad pot that doesn't hold water. You've got a sculptor without an, a sculpture without a nose on it. And so it became such a problem in the Roman providence in this day that what they would do, the Better Business Bureau of that day, whatever that was called, came in and basically said, look, you've got to have a seal of purity on this pot, on this sculpture, so that we know it doesn't have any wax in it because when it hits the sun, you're not, it's going to be useless. And so they would stamp a seal on the pot or the sculpture. And so think about it in this way. Let's reread this so that you may approve what is excellent, the best, be careful to do the best, to be without wax, to be pure for the day of Christ. Neat picture. Let me ask you this. When the sun beams down, when God the sun beams down and looks at your life, how much wax does he see? You know, that's what we do, right? As believers, even when we come to church on Sunday, everything's great, everything's fine. There's a lot going on underneath, isn't there? But here's the beauty of the gospel. Because I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. I'd be throwing myself under the bus. The beauty of the gospel is this, and I want you to hear this if you don't know Jesus here yet. If you haven't considered Christ yet. The Son looks at all the wax that we try to put over the blemishes in our sin. He looks at all of that. And he says, I've got you. I died on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin. And I've made you right and I've made you pure. Come to me. Trust me. Stop putting the wax over it. I've got you. This is what Christ has done for you. If you don't know that message Consider that today. And for you, the beauty of the gospel, if you're a believer in Christ, is this. You don't have to hide. <laughs> you don't have to hide. You don't have to put the wax on and hide. He continues to refine you. He continues to refine you. He's there. He loves you by his grace. He refines you. Come to him. Repent. Confess. Come back to him. He refines you. The potter, the clay. So we find our joy in praying for others, even like Paul in a prison cell. There's another stream of joy that you see in this passage that you can't really miss in verses 5 and 7 and 8. Would you look at it with me? And it's community. Let me just say it. Your second point is this. We find joy not only in our knees and prayer for others. We find joy with saints. Let me say it this way. Who have our back in the foxhole. That's your point. We find joy with other saints, believers, who have our back in the foxhole. This is the idea of partnership. Do you see the word there in verse 7? Partnership. This is the Greek word koinonia. If you've been in church at any time, some pastors use the word koinonia to talk about community or fellowship, sharing, partnership. They're all from the same word. But partnership in what? Look at it. In the gospel. And so the idea of partnership is that we have common ground. Like we, we're friends we do friendship, we share life together, but we have the common ground of having the same Savior, 
the same faith, the same hope, the same spirit. This is all the commonality that we have together, and we're on a shared mission. You see it in the gospel? So maybe you know this from life where you, you enjoy playing a cert, doing a certain hobby. You have things in common with different people. Maybe you have things in common with past. You have things in common with work. You have things in common with a hobby you enjoy. Well, here's the deal as Christians. You have the same spiritual DNA. You may look way different, may think way different. You have the same spiritual DNA. And it brings us together more than any of the differences that we have. And this is what Paul is saying and, and demonstrating with his partnership, not just the financial partnership, which we'll get to, but also relationship. Paul's led them to Christ. He has deep connection with them. This is the idea of koinonia. It pairs friendship and mission together. We have common ground. I can't help but think, when I think about this, I think of the Lord of the Rings. You think about Frodo and Sam, the hobbits. You think about the dwarf Gimli. And you think about Legolas, the elf, and the magician Gandalf, and Aragon. All kinds of different creatures. All kinds of different people. All kinds of different backgrounds. And yet they come together in fellowship. For a common ground and common purpose and common mission. This is like the church. The church is made up of all kinds of people. It's make all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of differences. But your bond is Christ. And I'm afraid, and this is a new community. It's a different kind of community that is distinct and unified. And I'm afraid what ha is happening and has been happening for a long time in the church is that we're more divided over second tertiary things than primary things. And we let those things divide us when the truth is the eternal DNA that God has given you and the person next to you has more in common than all your differences. And so this is what binds us together. And this is, uh, I mentioned membership earlier if I want to apply this. This is why we say we want you to commit. We want you to be a part of what we're doing here. We want you to partner with us, to be with us. Men, we need this. We need other brothers to hold us accountable. We need other brothers to encourage us and lift us up. We tend to think we can do it all on our own, but we need one another. Ladies, the same is true. The Bible talks all about men and women caring for one another, older, younger, younger, older. This is why we do community groups, so that you have the ability functionally to come together with other believers and have fellowship, to have community that's rooted in mission. And so that's why we do. And then there's verse 7. Look at verse 7. It's a similar idea. So you see partnership in verse 5. In verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you. We're partakers. The word means co-laborers. So check this out. This is really interesting. So they send money to Paul, right? Paul writes this letter back. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that, you know, I know I'm the one that has gone and planted other churches and led all these people to Jesus and the gospel is going forth. But what I'm saying to you, Philippian church, is the only church that has participated with me financially, what he's saying is, is that it's like you were there. You get the same reward that I get. Remember, Jesus talks about this. This is not salvation. You can't work your way to heaven. But there is eternal reward that Jesus talks about, that Paul talks about, and that we will be rewarded for what we do with what we have. And so... Paul is saying here 
the idea of partaker, co-labor is, it's like you were there. It's like you were there. You, you financially supported me, and so you get reward, just like I get reward in heaven for what happens in the ministry and what we're doing here. I want you to think about that. You think about the sender and the sent. You know, we talk about missionaries being sent out, and we send them out, and we support them. You get the reward that the, that the missionary wrought. And so when I think about this church, and I think about giving in this church, the blessing of seeing people come to faith or grow in Christ or the extension of ministry that we have, that we give to ministries like Feed, Teach, Hope, that are reaching kids with the gospel and planting churches. I think of Under Over Fellowship or all the different ministries that we support. If you support the ministry of this church that extends to that, there's blessing for you. There's reward for you. We tend to think about giving to your church as this wrought idea like, okay, I have to give. The Bible says I'm supposed to give to the church, first fruits, all this stuff. There's investment here. That's the way you ought to think about giving. If you want to think about giving and when you're cutting bills at the end of the month and you're going, oh, I know that, that it's tight here. And I've done that. Here's the thing. It's more like investment. You've, if you have an investment account, you invest in stock. What happens? You believe in something. You put money towards something. They do the work over here, and you get the reward if it turns out. If they do the work, you get the reward. And that's the way investing in kingdom purposes are. That's the way financial investment into your church or into a missionary works. You get to participate. You're a co-laborer. And this is what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. It's like you were there and you get the reward as well. So listen, we find joy in prayer. We find joy in community that we have one another in fellowship and giving of ourselves, our time and our treasure. And then last, let me tell you this. This is great. There's a sermon in verse 6. I wish, I probably should just take next week and do it. There's a sermon in verse 6, and I'm going to try to pare it down. I know you're looking at your watch. Find joy knowing Christ finishes what he starts. Look at verse 6. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's a glorious verse. I see four things in that verse. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But listen, first of all, salvation is God's work. Salvation is God's work. It's a good work. Do you see it? It's an unfinished work, but it is a certain work that God does. Think about Lydia for a minute. She's the first convert in Philippi that Paul leads to Christ when he comes to Europe for the first time and this church is founded here. What does the Bible say in Acts chapter 16? Paul comes and he speaks the gospel to them. And what does the text say? God opens her heart. God opens her heart. And she believes that it's God who started this work. And inherently, I think we all understand this and know this when you share your testimony of how you came to know Christ. It's like, look what God did. That's exactly what Acts 16 says, that it starts with God, that salvation is first and foremost God's work. And it's a good work. You think about if you were the slave girl, which is the second convert in the church of Philippi, in the place, this is the woman who was mocking Paul. This is a woman who had a demon. This is a woman who was owned by someone else and fortune-telling, and her change came on. She was set free to follow Christ. Is that a good work? Does that change things for the slave girl? 
It absolutely changed her life. And the jailer, it's a changed life. So it's a God's work. It's a good work. It's an unfinished work. Do you see it there? It won't be finished until the day of Christ. In theological terms, that's called glorification. That you're not done until then. But here's the thing. You're an unfinished work. You know what that means? God starts it. He's going to finish it. And yes, you're unfinished. Yes, you're an ongoing project. Yes, I'm an ongoing project for God. But he's going to finish it. He's going to finish the work that he started in you. If he started that work, if you know Jesus, he's going to finish it. Whether you look at it and go, I don't know. I'm pretty rough. I'm I'm a mess. God's going to finish it. He's going to do his work. You have any unfinished projects around your house? Sorry, brought it up. I've got a shed in the back and I've, I've painted, we painted half of it. And the other, well, not even half of it, like a third of it now that I think about it. And it's going to take a long time. I, I, I've got unfinished work on my house. How many unfinished books do you have to read? I know some of you are readers. I don't want to hear it. Oh, I've finished my books. I've got a lot of books sitting on the shelf where it's like I'm not even half done. I'm like a chapter in. I've got other books that I haven't read, but they look good on my bookshelf. How many unfinished things do you have in your life, in your home, in your life, in work? Listen, God's not like that. He's not like that. He doesn't have ADD. He finishes his work. He didn't make a mistake with you. If he's called you to himself, he didn't make a mistake with you. He doesn't regret it. He's still working on you. Do you believe that? Philippians 2, the next chapter, verse 13, if you'll just glance there, it says this, For God is, at, is the one who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's at work in you. And maybe some of you need that encouragement today. Some of you perfectionists who have lists and have to get things done. And you're not satisfied until the list is done. And yet, what happens when the list doesn't get done? How do you feel? Maybe you're a perfectionist in your spiritual life as well. But what happens when it doesn't go well? Where do you go? Listen, God's not finished with you yet. And it's going to be a work that not takes just today or tomorrow or next month, but your lifetime. He's still at work in your life. And maybe you're the legalist. Maybe that's your leaning when you, when you lean away. You're the legalist that goes, I've got, all, I got it all together. Everything's checked off on my list. What happens in life When you do something that you need God's grace for, and you've just been living with law, what do you do in that place? He's got you. And maybe you're just the free bird who just goes about life, but in the back of your head, you know, I need to grow. You take responsibility. God's got you. He's working on you. He will continue to work on you. So that's encouraging that we're all a work in progress. But my question for some of you is this. Has God started that work? Do you know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted him, believed in his work that he's done on a cross for you, that you can't earn, that you don't deserve, he hasn't started that work in you yet. You need to consider the message of the gospel, the good news That he's done the work for you. Well, we find joy in knowing God finishes what he starts. 
And if he starts a work in you, he's going to finish it. So really three streams this morning, right? They come out of this source of joy that Christ gives us, um, the stream of prayer to find joy in prayer, specifically praying for others, um, the joy of community, to, to be all in, to know that other people have your back and you're, you have other people's back, to participate in that, to lean into the gospel and know that he's going to finish a work in you. Those are three incredible streams that you can come to and you can drink from, you can be satisfied in. Well, maybe you're here and you go, you know, Pastor, man, I'm not much on prayer. I'm not much on prayer, especially when I'm hurting. That's a hard one for me. I don't have a, a big appetite for that, if you're just honest. I mean, I'm, and I'm also pretty burned on church relationships because church people are sinners. Yep, all of us are. I'm kind of burned on giving to the church. Let me tell you this story. Been there, done that. Maybe you believe the gospel. But you're going, man, you, you don't know what kind of unfinished work is, done, is, is left for me, Pastor. And I would just simply say to you that God has given you these means of grace, habits of faith that can be formed in you even if you don't have an appetite for it. And I would ask that you would ask God to change your appetite. You ever had an appetite change? About, I grew up meat potatoes guy. Got married, wife loves vegetables. That's a problem. So I, she would try to make things like casseroles that had things I really didn't like in it, like squash. And she would just look at me like, is he going to he gonna know? I'm like, babe, I taste the squash or asparagus or broccoli. Things that are good for me that I don't like, that I don't have an appetite for at all. And through a series of events like four years ago, my wife started this different kind of plant-based whole food diet. And she challenged me. She's like, just for a week. Just try it for a week. I'm getting a look right now. She's like, where is this going? Try it for a week. I'm like, all right, I'll try it. For, and, you know, at, at that time, it's like 1 p.m. hits, and you need coffee, and you're tired. Uh, I wasn't in a place at that point where I thought that was just getting older. And so I said, okay, I'll do it for a week. And I had more energy, and I enjoyed it. And so we went about a year, is that right? We went about a year. And after a year, I started eating bacon again. It took me a while. I like bacon. And our, and, our, and our diets changed back some. But you know what I have that I didn't have? I will eat tomatoes. I never ate tomatoes unless they were at the ranch, in the garden, from the ranch, with a lot of salt and pepper on it. I, love to, I like tomatoes. I'm going to say love. I like tomatoes now. She makes squash, like not in the casserole, for me to see, for me to know it's there, and I eat it, and I enjoy it, and broccoli, and asparagus. It changed my appetite. Had to have a habit to change that appetite. Man, God can change your palate. He can change your palate for prayer. He can change your palate for community, wherever you're at. Let him do his work in you. And maybe that begins with a habit of grace that he gives to you. And like me, maybe it begins with, I really still, you know, the first month I really didn't like some of the things I was eating. 
But listen, he who began a good work in you, if he's begun that work, he will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So your point and your takeaway is this. C3, he's not done with you. God's not done with you. If you started a work through Christ and you know Christ, he's not done with you. No matter what you think, no matter what you feel, he's not done with you. Whether you struggle in sin that you want to share, whatever it is, he's not done with you. He wants to continue to do work in you and through you. He's not done with you because he's a God of all grace that has shown his grace at the cross. You know what that else that means? He's not done with the person sitting next to you either. He's not done with your kids. He's not done with your spouse. He's not done with other people in the church. He's not done with you. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning. We thank you. We remember all the things that you've done in our lives and those around us. We receive joy from knowing how you work and seeing how you work in this world. Lord, I pray for us as a church that our love may abound more and more, that it would be overfilled with knowledge and discernment. I pray that we would have wisdom to discern and know not what's just good, but what's best. Lord, I pray by your grace each and every day would help us have no wax. And when we sin against you, that we would come back and know that the sun who's looking down and beaming down upon us is pleased. Not because we have it together, but because of what he's done and who we are, that we're his children. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to do a work in our heart, a progressive work in our heart, knowing that you're not done with us. We praise you and thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown us at the cross. That we can come to your table as your adopted sons and daughters, as forgiven sinners, as people in need of daily grace. And you'll still have us. Praise you, God, that you're not done with us in Jesus' name.